You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. Well, good morning. We are going to be in 2 Samuel chapters 3 and 4 today. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. And as you're turning, I want you to think with me if there's a time that you have ever traveled with small children or maybe even just tried to get out the door with little ones. One thing is clear, things do not move quickly with little ones. I have teenagers now and we move at a different pace. If I'm honest, most of the time my kids are waiting in the car for me but I remember my slower days. And I was reminded of this over Christmas vacation when we went on a trip with my extended family. We stayed in a big beach house and anytime we wanted to go to the beach, it was an ordeal getting everyone out the door. My kids grabbed their cell phones and their sunglasses and they were ready to go. But my sweet little younger nieces and nephews took a good 20 minutes to get ready. They had to find lost flip-flops. There were towels together. There were parts and pieces of clothing all over the house. They needed 45 toys for the trip to the beach and at least six snacks to take with them. It moved painfully slow. And when things feel slow, we are tempted to take matters into our own hands. So Aunt Jenny was there ready to start running the show. Let's get things going. I was loading toys in the cart, putting sunblock on faces, whatever it took to move things along. Well, the passage that we're going to read today feels similar. Second Samuel chapters 1 through 4 feel painfully slow. We expect things to be moving along now that Saul has died. First Samuel was the anticipation of David's kingdom. He was anointed king, but Saul was still alive and David was content to wait. So we were content to wait with him. But surely now that Saul has died, it is time. But God's timetable is not always the same as ours. So today we're going to see a contrast between taking matters into human hands and waiting on the Lord's timing taking matters into human hands and waiting on the Lord's timing. Next week in chapter five, David will finally be crowned king over all Israel. I hope that wasn't a spoiler alert. But today we will wait a little longer. Sometimes we get to learn from positive examples in the Bible, but today, sadly, we're gonna learn from a lot of negative examples, what not to do. We're gonna see a lot of self-seeking, a lot of taking matters into human hands and not waiting on God's timing. So let's jump in and see what we can learn. Chapter three, verse one. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Okay, so this verse stands alone as a summary statement for the rest of the section. The narrator here is highlighting the contrast between the rise of the house of David and the decline of the house of Saul, which is not new to us. This was the story of 1 Samuel as well. And so while this current situation is called a long war, sadly, the internal wars, the civil wars in Israel have only begun. Perhaps this is a foreshadowing of the many years of a divided kingdom ahead. Verse two, 
And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jesser, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ethriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. That was a mouthful. Okay, so six of David's wives are listed here. This list doesn't include Michael or many of the other wives that David will one day have as well. All of these children were born during David's seven-year reign in Hebron. And just the firstborn son of each wife is listed, meaning there were most likely many more children than this. Honestly, it sounds like a reality TV show. What do we do with David's multiple wives? It is hard to swallow, and it should be. Yes, this was typical Near Eastern practice, mostly for political purposes. For example, David's marriage to Maacah made Gesher David's ally. Yet, as you saw in your homework, it was a clear violation of God's commands. Not only his original design for marriage in Genesis— but also God's specific instructions for the kings of Israel. You read in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. By forming alliances through marriage, David is behaving not as God's king, but a king like the nation's. Well, just because the narrator makes no moral statement about David's Marriages doesn't mean approval. The narrator is simply stating the history, and the story itself will tell the tale of David's undoing because of his sin in this area of his life. And again, we see that even David isn't flawless. We are reminded that David is not the hero of the story because he is always morally upright, but because he is the man after God's own choosing. So while David's sin may feel disturbing to us, it actually should be a great comfort to us as well. God chooses and uses his people despite our imperfections. God chooses and uses his people despite our imperfections. And isn't this good news for you and me? So these many wives and children may seem on the surface like a picture of David's power and success, But as we will soon see, it's the beginning of the downfall for David. His family dynamics will remain dysfunctional for generations. David is sowing the seeds for a harvest of trouble and heartbreak, both for himself and for his kingdom. Verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Okay, so this verse also lays a foundation for the rest of our passage. We get a hint here of Abner's true motives. What was Abner busy doing? Making himself strong. We see that self-seeking human effort contrasted with David, who God had made strong. Verse 6 starts with the word while. So it sounds like while everyone else was distracted, Abner took advantage of the situation to strategically position himself. Here we clearly see Abner taking matters into his own hands. 
verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Okay, so we don't know for sure if Abner was guilty or not. Perhaps because of Abner's increasing power, Ishbosheth felt it was necessary to invent this accusation to get rid of Abner. However, it comes right after the statement that Abner was making himself strong, and this act would be consistent. Taking the concubine of a dead man was a symbolic act of taking over their household. And it is revealing that in defending himself, Abner says in verse 8, I have not given you into the hand of David, implying that Abner sees himself as the reason that Saul's house has remained independent. So whether or not he is guilty, Abner clearly has a high view of himself and a disturbing lack of humility. In verse nine, he continues his rant. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So this is so revealing. Abner's words here clearly demonstrate that he knows God's promise to David. He knows that God will one day give David the throne, yet he thinks that God needs help making it happen. I will accomplish what the Lord swore to David. What arrogance. We see Abner taking matters into his own hands versus waiting on the Lord's timing. And yet how can we be guilty of this way of thinking? I know that God has made a promise and I will accomplish it for him. I can help God. Instead of patiently waiting, trusting, praying, maybe it's in the salvation of our children or other family members. We know this is God's work, but it can be so hard to wait on the Lord. So we begin to take matters into our own hands to help God accomplish what only he can do. And here is the sad reality When we start helping God, we often stop praying the very thing we're called to do while we wait. So perhaps it's trusting the Lord with a wayward child or waiting on a phone call with lab results, waiting on healing, waiting on a new job. Waiting is hard. Yet we read in 1 Samuel 12, 16, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. So instead of I will accomplish, it's I will stand still and God will accomplish. Let's not fall prey to Abner's I will accomplish mindset. You see, Abner was not driven to support David because of theological conviction, but rather political drive, seeking his own advantage. He decides he's more likely to gain power by bringing Israel over to David than by controlling weak Ishbosheth. 
This is not a love for God and his promises or a desire to be on God's side like we saw with Jonathan, but selfishly seeking power and influence. Abner refers to God's promises when it's convenient, but ignores them when it doesn't serve his purposes. Perhaps like politicians today who use a Christian platform as a way to gain support. There is nothing new under the sun. And did you look up Dan to Beersheba on your map? It's from one extreme of Israel in the north to the other extreme in the south. It's the equivalent of saying from sea to shining sea. This is all of Israel. Okay, verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. Okay, so again, Abner boldly asserts here that all Israel will follow him. Apparently, all he has to do is say the word and it will happen. Verse 13, and he, David, said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Barhurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. So David, calm and cool, now acts like the one in control. He is now making the demands. David undercuts Abner's authority by making his demand directly to Ishbosheth. And as much as we might want to believe otherwise, David asking for Michael back was most likely a political move. She was the daughter of Saul. Perhaps he is hoping to unite himself to Israel and the Northern tribes. So let's consider for a minute the tragic mess of David and Michael's marriage. When we look back to 1 Samuel 18, we find that Michael is in love with David. We see that they get married and then they have a forced separation in 1 Samuel 25. Michael was taken from David and given as a bride to Palti or Paltiel, the son of Laish. And then here in 2 Samuel, we see another forced separation from her new husband who loves her. Later in chapter six, we will find Michael and David estranged. Michael is the victim of power politics. This is a sad fulfillment of 1 Samuel 8 when Samuel warned the people that a king will take your sons and take your daughters. Verse 17, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Okay, so apparently the elders of Israel had been desiring David to be their king, but they had done nothing about it. Benjamin may have needed more convincing since Saul was a Benjaminite. So Abner spoke to them in person. So again, here we find Abner quoting scripture. For the Lord has promised David. Why was this not previously good enough for Abner himself? 
Honestly, Abner reminds me of a teenage gossip. He's going from one group to the other, telling everyone what they ought to be doing without actually doing it himself. Verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the King, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. David gives Abner a feast. This alone is an act of mercy and forgiveness. Remember, Abner was the commander in chief for Ishbosheth, just recently fighting against David at Gibeon. And we note here that David didn't verbally respond to Abner. Perhaps David is still not ready to commit to the take the kingdom action plan. However, David dismisses Abner and tells him to go in peace. This is not a treaty of peace, yet it is a promise of protection or safety. A promise of peace like this in Near Eastern culture was held in high regard, which Joab will soon violate in an ugly way. Verse 22. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you? Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. Okay, so Joab is a new character on the scene for us. Joab is to David as Abner is to Ishbosheth, okay, the commander in chief of the army. And Joab is immediately suspicious of Abner's motives. He accuses him of spying on David's kingdom, and he is incredulous that David has let him go in peace. He basically calls David a fool. He says, your enemy has shown up on your doorstep and you let him go in peace. However, it is clear that Joab is well aware that David has let Abner go in peace. It is repeated two more times in this section that Abner left David that Abner left David in peace. To be fair, Joab is probably correct to doubt Abner's motives. But will Joab wait on the Lord's timing or will he take matters into his own hands? Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Okay, so Hebron was an ancient city of refuge, yet Abner will not find peace or refuge here. Abner trusts in David's promise of peace so much that he is willing to return and be alone with Joab. 
Joab not only murders Abner, violating the peace treaty of protection, but he directly rebels against David, who was the one who let Abner go in peace. Joab stabs Abner in the stomach, just as Abner had done to Joab's brother Asahel. This was clearly revenge. So as we consider all these killings today, it's important to note that Abner killed Asahel in open war, while Joab murdered Abner treacherously under the pretense of speaking peace to him. So let's stop here for a minute. These are the first two out of four stomach stabbings in 2 Samuel. What's up with that? It feels like a little much, like a little over the top. Barbaric stomach stabbings, executions, beheadings. We are past all this, right? Surely there's nothing like this in our culture today. Yet when I look at the current political climate, especially as it plays out on social media, it looks a lot like stomach stabbings to me. Fatal jabs and wounds doing damage to our ability to walk in unity and trust within the body of Christ and our witness to the unbelieving world. Remember, these were brothers stabbing one another, fellow Israelites murdering each other. May it not be so of the body of Christ today. Well, how does David respond to the news of Abner's death? Does he rejoice that his, rival, his rival's commander-in-chief has been killed? Does he consider this to be God's way of giving him the kingdom? Perhaps thinking, well, I didn't harm him personally, but I guess God took care of things for me. I'll see it as a sign from God and go ahead and take the kingdom that's been promised to me. Surely this is the time. And to be honest, we wouldn't blame him for such a response. But David will continue to possess a supernatural ability to wait on the Lord's timing. Verse 28. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. So David immediately declares his innocence in the death of Abner, and he pronounces curses on Joab and his family. In verse 30, the narrator makes Joab's motives clear. He killed Abner as vengeance for his brother's death. However, again, remember that was in the context of a battle, so should not have been personal or cause for revenge. You may ask, how was Abishai involved? Well, not directly, but it is implied that he either knew of the plan or would have approved of the plan. So why would Joab make this wicked choice? Perhaps on top of the desire for vengeance, he most likely feared a rival that Abner might replace him as David's commander. Joab chose to bear the guilt of murder over the potential of a rival. So we find that Joab is self-seeking as well, taking matters into his own hands instead of waiting on the Lord's timing. 
So David not only condemns Joab's actions, he now publicly mourns and laments for Abner. Verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. So David requires Joab along with all the others to participate in mourning Abner's death. It's a little awkward if you think about it. Abner was buried at Hebron, the place many of the patriarchs are buried. David was intent to honor Abner. And in this short lament, we read that Abner died as a fool dies. So perhaps David is referring to Joab as the fool, Or perhaps Abner was made to be the fool as he trusted in Joab. David also states that Abner's hands were not bound and his feet were not fettered, meaning that Abner came to Joab willingly, highlighting the treachery here. Joab fell before the wicked. It's not clear if David is calling Joab wicked or at the very least calling his deed wicked. We're going to pick up in 34b. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore saying, God do so to me and more so if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Okay, so David goes to great lengths to demonstrate his innocence and the death of Abner. He mourns, he laments, and he fasts. Seven times here we read all the people in verses 31 through 37. So the vibe of the people towards David is being emphasized. Regardless of whether David's mourning was genuine, it was a good PR move for David and the people loved it. The people were pleased by the king's demonstration of his innocence in the matter of Abner's death. Verse 37 is significant because it says all the people and all Israel. Significant that it was not just the people of Judah, but all Israel were made aware of David's innocence in the matter of Abner. This was so important because Abner had been the commander of Israel, and it wouldn't be a stretch in this situation to accuse David of aggressively taking Saul's throne by secretly having Joab kill Abner. David wanted to make it very clear that he was not responsible for and did not approve of Abner's death. Verse 38, and the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Gentle though anointed king. Even though David had the king's authority, David chose a gentle and gracious approach, pointing us to David's descendant who says in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. 
So even though David calls down curses on Joab's family, there was no immediate punishment for murdering Abner, even though his crime was the same as others in these chapters who are executed. Was it because Joab was a distant relative or was David truly leaving vengeance in the hands of the Lord? We read about the fulfillment of the curses for Joab in 1 Kings, where David gives instructions to Solomon. I'm gonna read that to you. It says, moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of Wait, avenging in time of peace for blood that has been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. David trusts that the Lord will be the one to repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And in this situation, he doesn't feel the need to be the one to execute justice on Joab. All right, chapter four. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. So the news of Abner's death reaches Ishbosheth and there is panic. Ishbosheth's courage failed, if he had any to begin with. All Israel was dismayed. Apparently, Abner truly was the strength behind Ishbosheth. Verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. So with everyone in a panic, it's just the time for some new take-it-in-our-own-hand thugs to arise, the brothers Baana and Rechab. But before we get into their story, we have a short side note in verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth's story will emerge later in chapter 9 where David will keep his word to show kindness to the house of Jonathan. Here, we are simply made aware of Meshibbeth's injury while his nurse was fleeing, most likely fearing her life and that of her young master. So perhaps the narrator included this little side note to emphasize the total weakness of Saul's house. We see that in Ishbosheth's fear and lack of direction the rise of these raiding captains, Baana and Rechab, and then the mention of Jonathan's now crippled son. Verse five. Now the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, Rechab and Baana set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Well, this crime is so unheroic. Baana and Rechab come and kill a man in his sleep. 
Verse 7 repeats the story with more details for emphasis to make it clear that Ishbosheth was completely helpless and defenseless. The narrator tells the story in a way that shames Baana and Rechab even before David pronounces judgment on them. Like Abner, Ishbosheth was not slain in battle. This is murder. This is self-seeking, personal gain. Most likely, Bayana and Rechab wanted premier positions in David's regime, and they think that bringing Ishbosheth's head will secure that. Let's pick it up in 8b. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. So again here, we see the use of theology as a means to gaining favor versus true belief in God's word or promises. The brothers claim, the Lord has avenged my Lord the King this day. No, actually, it wasn't the Lord, it was you. They are trying to pretty up the fact that they murdered a man by claiming that it was done in God's name. We see again, taking matters into human hands versus waiting on the Lord's timing. Verse 9, but David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. David replies, it is the Lord, not you, who redeems my life and delivers me from my enemies. You got this all wrong. It is you who have avenged and the Lord who has redeemed. God will protect David and he doesn't need help. And David knows that. Because David recalls God's goodness to him and breathes in gratitude, he is able to see falsehood for what it is. Gratitude is a weapon in the battle to wait on the Lord's timing. Gratitude is a weapon in the battle to wait on the Lord's timing. Psalm 103 verses two through five say, "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, "'and forget not all his benefits, "'who forgives your iniquity, "'who heals your diseases, "'who redeems your life. "'He has redeemed my life out of every adversity, "'who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, "'who satisfies you with good "'so that your youth is renewed like the eagles.'" You see, David is ready to respond rightly to Bayonet and Rechab as he recalls God's goodness to him. So picking back up in verse nine, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So David compares Baana and Rechab's bloody tale to the Amalekites' juicy report back in chapter one and claims that this is even more despicable. You see, the only way that David would have known about Ishbosheth being murdered in his bed 
was if Bayana and Recab had shared the whole graphic tale, obviously pleased. David calls Ishbosheth a righteous man here, not morally per- perfect, but in his death, he was without guilt. So like the Amalekite, Bayana and Recab were executed and publicly displayed. Again, David wants to make sure the people knew he wasn't guilty of the murder of Abner or Ishbosheth. And again, I'm sure there was good reason for David to be nervous. It wouldn't be a stretch to accuse David of having Ishbosheth killed. He was the last barrier to his promised kingdom. If Twitter were a thing back then, the rumors would have been ugly. So David wanted to make it crystal clear that he was not responsible and does not approve of the murder of Ishbosheth. The public display of the brothers' dead bodies was a warning for those who would continue in this bloody path. It is time for the murders to stop. So both Saul and his son Ishbosheth were struck in the stomach and beheaded. And for both, the news was brought to David, expecting him to be pleased. Yet instead, they were executed. You see, David shows that his is a kingdom where justice is upheld pointing us to another kingdom, Christ's kingdom, which Isaiah speaks of this way. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Who will accomplish it? The zeal of the Lord Almighty a lesson our friends today needed to hear. You see, all parties in our passage today knew the promise that one day David would sit on the throne. All parties knew the promise that David would one day inherit the kingdom. Only David seemed content to wait on God to make good on his promise. Second Samuel chapters one through four show the mess that taking matters into human hands makes of things. Yet the struggle of taking matters into human hands versus waiting on the Lord's timing is not new to David's time. Is it not the story of all of human history? What about Abraham and Hagar or the golden calf? Impatience leads to self-seeking instead of trusting the Lord and waiting on him. And it is no stretch to say that the same struggle exists in our lives today too. We can often be tempted to take matters into our own hands, especially when we're tired of waiting and especially when God's timing feels slow. Being quick and impulsive is such a part of our society, we probably don't even realize how we are taking things into our own hands. We value independence and the hardworking self-made man we may not even realize our modern day versions of beheadings and executions to get things moving along. Perhaps it could look like hastily jumping into action without first taking time to pray or giving up on a relationship or ministry when there isn't immediate fruit, making a hasty phone call instead of pausing first, manipulating situations for our children to make things more comfortable. Waiting is hard, and we are well-versed at taking things into our own hands. And just like for David, the antidote is trusting the Lord's timing and promises. 
and recalling God's goodness. Trusting the Lord's timing and promises and recalling God's goodness. Breathing in gratitude for past faithfulness that allows us to wait patiently on God's timing in our current situations. Where do you need to stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes? Where do you need to repent of I will accomplish? In your marriage, with your children, in your workplace, with unsaved friends or family members? Did you notice that the Lord was somewhat silent in these chapters? Maybe you had a hard time answering that last question about the attributes of God in these passages. I know that I did. Some of the only mentions of God in 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 4 are when his promises are twisted and misused. There is most likely an intentional dissonance felt here. As everyone is taking matters into their own hands, mention of God is scarce. This will somewhat be resolved next week as David is crowned king. But yet even his kingdom will not prove to be what humanity is longing for it too will leave a dissonance that will finally be resolved by another king. And ladies, that king is on the throne. He is anointed and crowned. We don't have to wait. We don't have to help him ascend to the throne. He is already crowned king of kings and Lord of lords. Let's trust him, breathing in gratitude for past faithfulness and patiently waiting on his timing. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. And we say what we sang together this morning, great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. We praise you that you are redeemer, that you have redeemed our life from every adversity. And we confess that it is hard to wait. It's hard to wait on your timing. And we repent of taking matters into our own hands. We want to repent of I will accomplish. God, help us. Help us to stand still and see what you will do. Help us to trust you and trust your timing that you will continue to be faithful. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.